0: April 1982, T-27 months to the Trammell Takeover. In this episode, we talk about Jumpman. Jumpman, Jumpman, and more Jumpman. Kevin Savitz and I have been working on reverse engineering Jumpman, and now is the time we're going to publish our documentation. We also have a contest that we're going to announce related to Jumpman, so stay tuned to that later on in the podcast. We've got plenty of technical discussion of Jumpman as well, and along with the usual magazine coverage, we have the debut of Antic Magazine, the second of the Atari-specific magazines in North America. This is the Player Missile Podcast, I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 20. for joining me on another episode of the player missile podcast it's july 2016 as i record this which means it's time for kansas fest kansas fest is an annual apple II convention that has recently been invaded by atari people kevin savitz i think was the first atari regular to go and last year wade ripkowski from the inverse Sataski podcast and i also went so we had three atari podcasters there i'm gonna go again this year unfortunately it doesn't seem like Wade can go this year which is too bad because it was fun hanging out with him Kevin and I have been working on a project together that we are going to formally announce at Kansas Fest, and by the time you hear this, it'll probably be after Kansas Fest, given how my editing goes. So I invited Kevin to talk about it a little bit, so we've got a section on the podcast coming up here where Kevin and I are going to talk about what we've been doing, what we're, what contests we're going to announce, and all sorts of good stuff. So stay tuned for that. Kansas Fest, of course, is at the Apple II convention, and I met a lot of nice Apple II people there, one of whom was Chris Torrance who I just found out has a video podcast about the soft talk Apple magazine. So kind of what I do here on my podcast, except he's doing a video one. he's going page by page and the videos, you can see, like you can see all the ads, you know, you can look and he points out all the ads and descriptions and goes through the articles and stuff. So it's a very detailed video podcast about one single magazine soft talk. Chris is also the editor of a book about 6502 programming assembly lines by Roger Wagner was a continuing column in Soft and So Chris edited all those columns, put them into a nice big book, which I got last year at Kansas Fest. I'm holding now right here. It's uh, been helpful. I've been getting back into 6502 programming with all the stuff I've been doing with Jumpman. And that is the theme of this podcast for sure. Jumpman. Jumpman, Jumpman, Jumpman. All Jumpman. Jumpman technically is not a 1982 game. It's an 83 game. But I can't wait anymore. I'm going to assume that Randy Glover was working on Jumpman in 1982. So that's close enough for me. In the meantime, since my last episode... Kevin and I interviewed Randy Glover, so that's in the Antic podcast feed. And we could barely contain ourselves with excitement. I mean, this is the author of the game that both of us think is our favorite game. So yeah, it was fun talking to him, and we learned a lot of stuff about Jumpman, and I've been getting further, and further into the Jumpman code, and I'm getting ahead of myself. So I will come back to Jumpman. And, you know, again, in the spirit of Kansas Fest, I run across some Apple II stuff. There's a great blog. David Schrader has a blog on the Apple II, how he programmed dino eggs. This has been mentioned on the um, Open Apple podcast it's a really great read. And even, though of course, it's Apple-specific. There's still some good stuff if you're interested in 6502 programming. And as it has been quite a gap of time since my last episode, there have been two full issues of the Antic podcast, the regular podcast, not the interview series. And I was a guest on Antic episode 33, where we talked about some of the work that Kevin and I have been doing on Jumpman. And there's Jumpman again. I'm still getting ahead of myself. Also mentioned in Antic episode 33 was Bill Lang has a website all about Atari 8-bit ads. It's amazing. It's really great. And so uh, you know, some of the ads that I've seen have are already covered in this webpage. I'll link to that in the show notes. So highly encourage you to go read that and check that out. Another podcast that I was not a guest on or anything, but that I listen to regularly and encourage you to as well is the Intellivisionaries. And they did if you're listening to this in real time, you've already heard this episode. But if you're if this is some point in the future, go back and listen to episode twenty six, where they have this epic rant about the Coleco Chameleon which is this on and get off again, sort of it's cautionary tale about what not to do if you're going to try to release some product via Kickstarter. But I think they got the final word in. I don't think anything else needs to be said, so go listen to that. Let's do a little bit of feedback. I got an email from Matt Walsh, who just discovered the podcast. He says, I'm really enjoying your podcast. I also listen to Antic, but can't get enough material as I have a 45-minute bike ride to fill. Wow, can't, I hope you're listening to the Antic interview episodes as well, because that'll give you a lot of stuff. But then he gave me a list of a couple games you'd like to hear more about. One is Hard Hat Willie, which I don't know anything about. Uh, Omnitrends Universe, he suggested. He says is probably his number one game that he could <laughs> wish he could go back and figure out and play. He said, it seems to have an insane amount of depth so ahead of its time. Yeah, I agree. I was one of the, my favorites, and I I don't want to give you a spoiler, but I did talk about it in an upcoming episode. I don't know if you've gotten there yet. Given the amount of time that's passed since I've done my last episode, and then when you said this in, you probably have, so you probably know about it. He talked about the battery-included in- sets of apps. I can't remember. I don't think Wade has talked about those yet. Montezuma's Revenge is another one he mentions, and says there's a mystery about this game. says it's almost complete, and that many have tried to defeat the big guy at the end, but apparently have not been able to. So he includes a link in the, that I'll include in the show notes for our YouTube uh, playthrough. And another one he mentions is Galahad and the Holy Grail, which he says that uh, of APX games, everybody remembers Caverns of Mars, but not so much this one. He said, it's to my mind the only 2600 Adventure-like original game for the 800. So yeah, it is kind of like a sequel to Adventure, and I think I might review that for my next episode. So thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening. I had an email from a friend of the show, Zigfried Lentz, and he mentioned that he tried Omnivore for the first time and thinks it's great, intuitive to use, and says, many, many thanks for programming it. So, hey, yeah, you're welcome. Glad you're giving it a shot. He also said, this would be great, he's going to try to use it to find out where the maps are hidden in Seamus so he can uh, hack the Atari Seamus to use the other maps from the C64 version. And that's an awesome project. I hope you're able to do that, and yeah, keep me posted. He says, I'll use the occasion to thank you for the effort you put into the podcast and definitely do keep up the tech dissections, which are always interesting to listen to. Well, thanks, yeah, and I do like the tech stuff. I don't think I can get away from doing that, even if I tried. I think I would still get sucked into all the tech details. He goes on and says, I'll accept Jumpman as the best platformer on the condition that Spelunker will be rated the the best in the underground exploration, ledge jumping, rock blasting category, and which I'd add the insta-death category. Which, yeah, I, I really like Spelunker, but it's just so hard and you've got zero margin for error. And he wants Minor2049er to be first in the changing floor tile color while platforming game. He goes on and says, Jumpman is great and played it for hours. I think it's more inviting than the other two because it's very easy to understand. And out of the three, Jumpman probably managed the most varied game mechanics between the different levels. 8-bit gaming at its best. Well, I agree, he's agreed. And thanks for the email. Another friend of the show, Justin Knight, an omnipresent supporter of all the other podcasts with all the emails that he sends in, so thanks a lot, Justin, for keeping us motivated. He sent this email just as I was completing production on episode 19. So he sent it about episode 18 and uh, I wasn't able to include it in the last episode. So I'm including it here. He said, he was sorry to hear that uh, the podcast might be on hold for a while, but pleased and reassured to discover that the blog will be continued to be updated and podcast is to return in the future. So yeah, my release schedule has not been as (laughs) constant as possible. And unfortunately I think it's probably going to continue for a little bit. So we'll see. So love doing the podcast. Just a time thing. Yeah, he just wanted to send some extra encouragement, and I really appreciate that, Justin. And thank you, and thanks for your support for the other podcasts as well. I know we all appreciate it as podcasters. Talk a little about listener-written programs. Wade, from the Inverse podcast, has on his blog started to document a windowing system he made in action. So the action language is a really cool procedural language, um, kind of in the vein of sort of Pascal, or, I don't know, It was a very common language. It was, I never really got into it, but it was, uh, it was... Used to create a lot of programs. It runs at a really appreciable fraction of, of straight assembly, and if you still need, even need more speed, you can drop inline assembly into action. And Wade has a post about that as well. But his windowing system he's working on is in uh, graphic zero mode, and he's got drop downs and menus and widgets and all sorts of stuff. So if you're an action programmer or want to learn some action, go check out his blog posts. Wade has always does an excellent job in. His writing and uh, includes just a phenomenal amount of pictures and, and documentation. He really great uh, attention to detail on all, all the stuff he does. As you know, if you listen to his podcast, which you should. Talk a teeny little bit about MAME. The California Extreme arcade game show is coming up here in a week or so as I record this. Probably it will already have happened by the time you hear this. It's here in the Bay Area in California, and it's a collection of hundreds of arcade machines. So I'm really excited about it. I didn't get to get to go last year because it conflicted with Kansas Fest and I was not around. But now I'm here because Kansas Fest is a week later. So I'm looking forward to checking it out from the first for the first time. And I hope to record a little audio segment that I will submit to Vic and Sean at the Ten Pence Arcade Podcast. Well, let's talk a little tech and it'll all be about Jumpman. I'll defer most of the Atari stuff about Jumpman till later. But interestingly, it seems that the work Kevin and I have done have has started to inspire others. A post on Atari Age alerted us to the fact that there was a Commodore 64 user who saw our work and started to hack the C64 version. So he had built a little C64 editor. He reverse engineered the C64 levels enough to figure out, you know, the C64 version of all the level construction stuff, created an editor and posted it on Lemon64, which is a Commodore 64 specific uh, forum. I'll include a link to the show notes there. And then on Age, we were alerted this and we made contact with him. So we're going to see if we can share some info because there are several levels that are different in the C64 version. So it'd be fun to figure it out and see if we can swap back and forth get the levels that we don't have on on our version to him, see if we can get the C64 versions back on our platform. There's enough things that are different that it won't be a straight, you know, just drop-in replacement. So we're going to have to sort of figure out a little bit more about the differences between the platforms. But it's been cool to see that we've maybe inspired somebody else to do some work. That helps keep Jumpman around and alive and kicking. Even if it is on the C64. Although, make no mistake, the Apple II version sucks. I posted that on Twitter, and Carrington Vanston flew into a mock Atari outrage before he vehemently agreed with me. We are T-27 months from the Trammell takeover. Your CEO is Ray Kassar. Looking at Michael Current's Atari timeline, let's see what's going on. So, April 3rd, U.S market uh, got Pac-Man for the first time, so they c- proclaimed it Atari National Pac-Man Day. <laughs> and it says Atari arranged for Pac-Man to be appear in life-size costumes in 27 cities. On the arcade side, they released Dig Dug for the first time. That was licensed from Namco. And he says they released the Space Duel Cocktail Cabinet. There's a whole bunch of APX software that they released, including stuff that Wade and Kevin have talked about on their respective podcasts. There's the isopleth Map... Ma- iso Pleth mac- <laughs> map-making package. There we go. I forget who authored that, but I know Kevin interviewed him. The RPN Calculator Simulator. And I'm almost sure Kevin interviewed whoever that was as well. And for more details, read Michael Current's history, which I will include a link to in the show notes. This month, we add new magazine into the coverage. This is Antic. This is one of the big two Atari magazines here in the United States and North America, I suppose. The publisher was Jim Caparel, and there's a great interview with him. Uh, one of the very early interviews that the Antic podcast did, this is before they split out their separate tracks and interviews and, and the regular podcast. It's episode number three of Antic. Uh, Kevin has about a, I don't know, about a 30 minute interview with Jim Caprell and then he's got a separate like uncut interview that's available on archive.org. But, and he talks about how Jim was working at the uh, NASA, the Ames Research Center and he got involved in Atari computers because Atari was the one that would donate some equipment to their uh, research project. So that's how he got interested in Atari stuff. And he, was putting together a little newsletter and decided to make it bigger. And so then created Antic. So a bunch of great details in that interview episode. I won't repeat that stuff here. I would just point you over there and have you listen to that. I'm looking at this on archive.org. I don't have a copy of these early Antics. Thanks to a friend of the show, Kevin Lund. I have about 25 Antic magazines, but they don't start up until 1984. So i have got a little ways before I get into paper copies of stuff. So I don't know how these early Antics were bound. Most of the later Antics were perfect bound, which means they were sort of a glued spine. Rather than the stapled binding that the analogs had. on the cover is the antic in big letters it's kind of like the it's the traditional antic lettering. it's the a large red capital A and then the lowercase NTIC kind of each of them tilted slightly differently. It's the same font design they use for the entire life of the magazine I think there's a looks like pen and ink drawing of a guy on a ladder that's tilting over to the left and he's reaching over to the right to try to straighten up the C on the antic. It says the Atari resource. Inside word processor survey, pilot fourth basic, five program listings, and the memory map. And it says introductory issues, $2.50. Inside front cover is an ad for the Mosaic 32K RAM upgrade for $179.95. The table of contents has eight articles and then has the their recurring stuff, the editorials, product reviews, stuff like that. We'll get to all those. Masthead editor and publisher is James Caparel. And below it says, Antic encourages writers and programmers to submit work for publication. Writers warrant that their work is original and ownership resides with the author. Material not accepted for publication will be returned, provided that sufficient postage is enclosed. Authors acknowledge that material accepted for publication becomes the exclusive property of Antic publishing. So It seems kind of conflicting that it says ownership re- resides with the author, but then becomes... Oh, I guess suppose they're, you're warranting that you wrote it before you submit it, and then... If they do choose it, then it becomes property of Antic. So, okay, I get it. The editorial is by James Caprell and says they're they're dedicated Atari enthusiasts involved since it came to the market in 79. It says, we look carefully at the Atari user community and watch it grow and grow until there are approximately 100,000 users. So, I think it's interesting. I wonder how they got that number. It says, we now think it's time Atari users had their own dedicated publication, a resource that can be turned to for help and up-to-date info. Which is interesting because Antic was beaten to the market by over a year, by Analog Magazine, so it's like, shots fired! So, hmm. And yeah, that... that I don't know if that's emphasizing again by one of the final sentences, and Antic will finally give Atari enthusiasts a strong, clear voice that will be heard down there in Silicon Valley. So maybe emphasizing that they're based here in the Bay Area, whereas Analog was in Massachusetts. So yeah, that's... that's clearly, and they must have been aware of Analog. So, yeah, that's an interesting development. The first article is a word processor comparison... Comparing the Letter Perfect, Text Wizard, and the Atari Word Processor, all of which I think Wade has reviewed. There's an article called The Starting Line by James Caparell, where it gives a glossary of sort of terms that are familiar to us because we grew up with this stuff. But had you not been in computers before, well, probably you wouldn't be reading this magazine. But So it defines terms like cartridge, console, cassette recorder, cursor, memory, program. defines the control key, so a basic little uh, glossary. There's an article called Systems Guide, and this is the memory map for page zero. So it says for the next few issues, they're going to construct a complete memory map. It says a memory map is nothing but a list of the reserved memory locations in RAM and ROM with a description and purpose of each. So I've probably made it clear, if I have not, then I'll make it clear now. Analog was my favorite of these two. I always preferred Analog over Antic. I never had a subscription to either, but I would always buy Analog and would only occasionally buy Antic. And one of the reasons why, and this may sound pedantic was the fonts that they use when they're describing like memory locations and stuff they don't use a fixed width font they use like it looks like helvetica or something it's a it's uh, i don't think it's actually helvetica but it's what's one of those it's a sans serif font kevin I hope you're listening and so that the so the columns of um you know, six character identifiers for the memory locations don't line up on top of each other it's all you know it's it's a ragged right boundary and that just bothered me you I know mean, what was i 10 or whatever but i still i was just Whereas Analog uses a fixed-width font for all their computer, like, output and stuff. So everything all lined up, it and was, it was very easy to read. And Antic always used this proportional font for all their, like, assembly listings. I just found it really hard to read, and I was put off by the presentation. So maybe that's just me, maybe other people felt the same way, but that is one of the main reasons I preferred Analog to Antic. And I, I think Analog focused more on the 6502, and I was kind of, like, really bent on learning how to program games. Like arcade style games. And so I, I really enjoyed all the 6502 listings they had in analog. There's an article on Pilot. It says, Pilot Your Atari by Ken Harms. Never really got into Pilot. Of course, I know what it is. You know, the turtle graphics were the sort of drawing point, I think, to Pilot. There have been several interview episodes of, uh, Antic, the podcast that talks about Pilot. A little blurb about the GTIA. It says, if you purchase your computer after January 82, it probably already has a GTIA and the rest can, rest of the folks can purchase it as an upgrade. Basically, you just swapped out the chips, and you could take it to a service center to do that. And it adds 256 colors instead of the 128, so essentially the odd color values now can be used. And then it talks about graphics 9, 10, and 11, which are the 4-pixel wide by 1-pixel high, if you compare it to graphics 8 pixels. But yeah, they have, can use 16 colors. There's an article, Tape Topics, Help for Cassette Owners by Gary Phillips. It shows you how to do all, like multi-program tapes, all sorts of stuff. There's some software reviews. There's a review of Monkey Wrench, which is a right slot cartridge for the 800. So it's a basic enhancement. And there's a machine language monitor and all sorts of stuff. I never use this. I never had a right slot cartridge at all. I think the guys on the Antic podcast, they totaled up, there's something like 16 right slot cartridges. or some really small number. There's another review of uh, the Tricky Tutorials. I never heard of the Santa Cruz Educational Software. It says there's a set of six tutorials, which I guess are programs. There's They talk about there's one for display lists, another for scrolling, page flipping, animation, player muscle graphics, and sound and music. I' doesn't really say if there's documentation, documentation to go with it, or if it's just the program that you sort of read and understand and modify, so it's, I'm kind of unclear as to what these are all about. But hopefully, on the next page, there's an advertisement for this. So yeah, it looks like it's programs that are then documented so you can kind of understand what they're doing. So if you want to subscribe to Antic, there's a form here. It's one year, for, which is six issues, for 15 bucks. But actually, at the one-year point, they go to monthly, and then they continue publishing uh, until uh, 1990. So they were yearly until the end of 89, and then they had uh, four more issues that were bimonthly, and then they were folded into Start, I think, which was their ST magazine that came out in 85, I think? 86, maybe? Maybe Wade will tell us more in his 1632 podcast that... Is rumored to have been already recorded. So, hmm. Looking forward to that. There's a public domain game, Chicken, which looks a lot like the Crossy Road style game, you know, the um, is it the Activision game called Chicken? Is that right? Oh no, it's Freeway. That's right, Freeway. Kind of looks like this is written in BASIC. And so it's got that really hard to read proportional font. My favorite. There's an article on Fourth. It's called The Fourth Factory by Bob Gonzalves. And 4th is really, really confusing to me. I don't understand it at all. I never really had reverse Polish notation calculators, so that's all, or I didn't do much list programming. You know, it was all stack-based, and it's very, very odd to me. It's all based on pages or screens or something, so you code everything in screens, and so you label each screen with a number. I don't know. It's, I've been interested in it, and the hex editor that I used way back in the 80s that I got from somewhere not legally, I imagine, was written in 4th. I know, you know, it was really fast, and I wrote something in BASIC that was really slow, and so Fourth was definitely well suited to the machine, but it was too confusing for me. There's an article on the Assembler Editor Cartridge Tricks of the Trade, it says, by James Caparell. So it gives a set of 10 quick tips that you can do to help with the Assembler Editor Cartridge. The one thing I know about that, or I've heard, is that, like it's incredibly slow, and the uh, Macro Assembler was much better. And then I guess as you further went on, there was like Sin Assembler and, all, and the one I used, Mac 65, they were all much better than the Assembler Editor. There's a little sidebar. It says, what's in a name? Antic. So talking about how they got the name for the magazine, it says, we like the name Antic because it's connotation of playfulness and it's direct connection with our machines. Our reference on the cover to resource means that we want to be a source of supply, support, or aid. We intend to live up to our name and have registered it as our trademark. Watch for software under our label. It's an article on assembly language by Matt Loveless. And yay, they have a assembly language output in a monospace font. So yay for that. I don't remember that being all that common in the future. So it's a little assembly language program to allow your basic program to mask or ignore any particular key on a keyboard. So it interfaces with the keyboard vector and then throws away stuff that you don't want. So it's a little one-pager, and it's got an additional little basic program for support. References a couple books, The Atari Assembler by Don and Kurt Inman, which I remember seeing but I don't think I ever had. And The 6502 Assembly Language Programming by Lance Leventhal, which is a reference textbook. Speaking of books, they have a book review section, they look at Compute's first book of Atari, which is a collection of articles that appeared in Compute, and they reference just introduces DeRay Atari, and you can order directly from the Atari Program Exchange. Oh, here's an ad for online systems, and in it, there is a reference to Mousk Attack and Jawbreaker, both written by John Harris, who was just recently interviewed on the Antic Interview series by Kevin. Really good interview. Yeah, I mean, all the interviews are good, but this one was especially good because he remembered a lot of details back then, and that's something that... Doesn't always happen as Kevin talks to people. Yeah, and that was the back cover, actually. Yeah, when reading it on, on archive.org, I wasn't looking ahead. That's actually the back cover. So that's it. So a small issue for the first one, but Analog and Antic will always get an in-depth coverage where I'll look at pretty much everything. So it is bi-monthly at this point, so we'll see it again next time in um, June of 82. For now, we'll skip over to Byte Magazine. This is Byte Volume 7, Number 4 for April 82. 2 bucks 95 in the... Cover price in the U.S. three bucks fifteen. Canada one pound eighty five in the U.K. Don't remember noticing the U.K. price before. On the picture, unfortunately, is not another great Robert Tinney piece of art, but is a photo of a, a small like palm top modem. It looks like it looks like it has about a one by sixteen LCD display, full qwerty keyboard. Isn't this in the style of one of those little Casio handheld calculators? I guess. Subtitle on the magazine is Human Factors Engineering with the IXO Telecomputing System. Whatever that is. In the table of contents, the only Atari thing is the Atari tutorial. This is Part 8, Generating Sound with Software by Bob Fraser. A few more interesting things we might cover as I flip through the magazine. The editorial talks about this IXO system. It's this little, they call it a handheld terminal, costs 500 bucks. going can access the source, CompuServe, Dow Jones via telephone cable. They actually plug into the back of this. It's that single line system. Built-in modem autodialer, emulate terminals, fits in your pocket, and operates a battery. Sounds good to be true, too good to be true, but it's not fantasy the product does exist, they say. It exists, but I don't think it's terribly useful. But as per usual byte, it goes into quite a lot of detail about it. And also as per usual being byte, there's a lot of ads interspersed in there. And here's an ad for a rana systems drive, which they made an Atari one, but this is for Apple. The industrial design looks a lot like the Rana drive that came out for the Atari, and it doesn't have as much the Atari one, I remember, had some more front panel stuff. This has a busy indicator and a write-protect switch, so you can you can punch it, apparently, and automatically write-protect the disk. Ooh, there's an ad for the Osborne, portable, luggable. There's an article on the generic word processor, word processing system for all your needs. It's a very generically described um, system that took me a while to realize that the month of this issue had something to do with it. So I'll leave it at that. I'll let you read it if you're interested. Don't want to spoil it. It's actually pretty funny. All right, you know what? I'm kind of tired of flipping through 500 pages of Byte magazine, so I'm just going to skip ahead to the Atari stuff. It's been so long since i recorded the last one. I think this last one was sound as well, the blast issue, and part 8 is also sound. So it talks about static sound, which is essentially just recurring sine waves, or then you can sum them together and make different sort of periodic sounds as the waves cancel or augment each other. And there's a little basic program to demonstrates some of this stuff. Uh, it says basic is somewhat limited in its handles, handling of sound generation. Because well, basically kind of slow and you can only trigger one sound command at a time, and so if you're sitting on or if you're interested in in sort of precise timing, the waves will be offset a little bit, so it gives a little machine language example, which is much faster. And then it goes on to talk about the vertical blank and how it's really useful for playing sound. It says direct control of sound registers with a dedicated machine language r- routine opens up new doors in sound generation talks about having a table driven sound routine where you can store your the changes to the sound variables in a table, and then every vertical blanket will update those. And it also talks about the volume-only bit, in which you can adjust the volume every 60th of a second, and it says it offers tremendous capacity for accurate sound reproduction. And then it talks about how you can simulate the, the envelope of a piano, where the wave of the piano causes the sort of the characteristic keystroke sound of the piano, and you can duplicate that by adjusting the volume of the waveform. In the midst of this article, there's an ad for the Atari Star program, and then there's a machine language routine where he describes some of this waveform adjustment where you can change the envelope of a waveform. That's about it. In closing, it sort of tries to emphasize the importance of sound in, in terms of mood setting, background music, you know, how you can affect the subconscious. Uh, so sounds are important in, uh, in games, particularly, and that the Atari has quite advanced capabilities for the comparable computer systems. The only other article I think I'm going to look at in this issue about is an article about binary coded text, a text compression method. So it says, trim size by encoding common character strings. So it starts out with the observation that there are 256 possible values you can store in a byte, but far fewer actually needed to store text. But then it explores that at the word level. So it says, okay, look at a six-letter word. It says such a word requires seven bytes of memory. So the first six bytes store the letters and the seventh stores the trailing blank. So there's 56 bits of memory can take any one of 2 to the 56th power possible states. So basically in 7 bytes you can can allocate that many different 6-letter words, but there are considerably fewer than 2 to the 56th power 6-letter words, and quote several studies that that maybe typically 50,000 unique words are in common use. So basically the point of this article is to encode, like have a lookup table of common words and encode them in fewer bytes. One of the ways you can do that is with... Codes for particular endings of words, and so there's a table here of like different types, like ment, ing, ion, ly, So some of those can be encoded to save some space. You can add trailing punctuation that can be encoded in a different thing in different ways, like a trailing period, comma, semicolon can be encoded. So building up a dictionary, like a I guess like a Huffman table. Huffman encoding is a compression routine that I don't entirely understand. I mean, I know what it is, but it's I don't understand the inner mechan- inner workings of it, but basically it's a lookup table where you you can have a small number of bits that'll expand into whatever you want. So this method of encoding text, you're trading space for the for this huge lookup table to then a smaller amount of space for the actual storage of the individual files. Yeah, so this might make sense for something like a you know a set of stories, or say if there was some way to implement some of this table in ROM, so then you could only ship around the small little bits. And of course, in today's world, this doesn't make much sense, but back when memory actually had a limit, you looked at all sorts of stuff to reduce your memory footprint. I think that's all I'm going to cover about Byte. Byte is wearing me down, this big old thing with all these ads, and maybe just the interface of looking at it on the Internet Archive, which, again, it's great. I don't want to bash that, but just trying to read this is just not the same as flipping through it for a 550-page magazine, aka the phone book. Let's go to a more reasonable-sized magazine now and compute. So the April 82 issue, number 23, volume 4, number 4 of Compute, the journal for progressive computing, 2 bucks 50 on the cover price. On the cover is the usual sort of watercolor-y style drawings. There is a tennis player smashing a tennis ball through a brick wall. There's a person with a magnifying glass holding it up to some floppy disks. Called out are intelligent input sub- subroutines for the Atari, Pet, and Apple. Shooting Stars, which is a game for Apple, CBM, Atari, or OSI. So I'm guessing it's not a graphical game. There's Atari mailing list programs and Atari Microsoft Basic Part 2 the review. So let's get to it. So the table of contents has changed slightly now. They've got a list of all the articles and stuff on the sort of left three quarters of the page. and On the right, there's two columns where it says computer-specific or multiple computers. And in the computer-specific column, it has a key now. So there's Apple, Atari, PET, VIC-20, OSI, the Coco. So if it's a specific one, it lists that. And if it's multiple computers, then it is listed in that column. So for the Atari ones, there's UltraCube, which is SuperCube Revisited. SuperCube was talked about several issues ago. There's the Inside Atari column. There's the Atari Mailing List Program. Accurate Timing in Atari BASIC. And the Review of Atari Microsoft BASIC, the Part 2 of that. So unlike previous ones, they don't have the Atari Journal anymore, it seems. It's all kind of split up in just the journal, and it's a sort of a set of these articles, but it's not particularly based on one machine. So yeah, we'll see how long that lasts because I remember the Atari journal being there when I was reading compute. So after the Atari Star Award again, yeah, eighty two we're in the in the throes of the Atari program exchange. In the editor's notes they list a interesting little column. It says Atari Inc. rumored to be developing the ultimate in software protection. It says that Atari's investing significant research towards a true protection method for the software Possibilities include a CPU-dependent encryption process. And it says we'll be interested in seeing their progress. Keep you posted. Clearly that never happened. Thankfully for software preservation works today, right? An ad for Compute's first book of Atari. And here's an ad for the Apple Fest. There's four of them around the year. I don't think this is the precursor to Kansas Fest, I think that's a totally different event, but I'll have to ask when I'm at Kansas Fest if if anyone knows the history of Apple Fest. Here's the Shooting Stars program. It's a little basic program and there's no screenshot, so I'm not exactly sure what it's like. It seems like kind of a Space Invaders saying, they do say the Atari version is is not a line-by-line translation of the original, but it's programmed specially for the Atari. It says, note, this uses a little-known Atari graphics mode. So it says, using the three-color IRG mode 4. What does IRG mode 4 mean? And there's no three-color mode, so, hmm. Oh, so you're talking about Antic mode 4. Okay, so it's the um, five-color text mode. The tile mode. It's about a hundred-line basic program, but no screenshot, and I refuse to type it in. So, yeah. I mean, even back then, if there wasn't a screenshot, I was not going to waste time spent typing a 100-line program in without knowing what it was going to look like. They are really doing themselves a disservice. 35 years in the past. Make note of that editors of 35 years ago put screenshots in your magazines. Here's the article on UltraCube, which SuperCube revisited. No screenshots, so I'm not exactly... I think this was the isometric drawing program. So it's in basic, it's probably about 100 lines of typing. It's not commented in the code, but it's commented outside. So they have like a, a little chart that shows you what each section of code is for, but it's really not commented in the code itself, which is fine, because typing it in, you wouldn't want to type in those comments anyway. Article on Intelligent Input Routines, sort of a replacement for um, the input statement, in that it traps, you know, like some of the character cursor movement and stuff, so the example for the Atari version only allows you to type uppercase, lowercase, punctuation, numbers, but it doesn't. It ignores any editing or cursor control commands except for backspace. There's an article in Machine Language Jump to it by Jim Butterfield, talking about the... 6502 jump instruction and how to use jump tables. Just a quick little intro. There's a Petsky to ASCII conversion article, which ordinarily I wouldn't mention, but I'm always kind of curious. I don't think petsky has characters below hex 20. Is that right? I don't know. Maybe somebody knowledgeable on the Commodore platform can let me know. It looks like we're into the sort of journal section that used to be broken out into other individual computers, but now it's all glommed together. There's an Atari mailing list program, which is a custom little basic program to, that... Um, gathers up stuff in in strings where you put the addresses, and it breaks up the fields into hard-coded lengths, like 15 characters for the first name, or what? No, 15 characters for the last name, 10 characters for the first name, 25 for the street address, whatever. So it's got this fixed width for each field and then looks like you can print out labels and stuff. It's a pretty good-sized basic program, probably. Yeah, we're getting on 500 lines or more. There's an article on the VIC chip, which, again, I ordinarily wouldn't mention, but I am curious as to really how the commodore stuff works and this, this is particularly the vic chip on the vic 20 so not the vic 2 on the uh, 64 but still I, I think they're similar you know and especially talking about the jumpman c64 conversion or a um, hacking project that is going on simultaneously with our jumpman project it's just interesting to see how the computers are different in some ways and similar in other ways and there's some commodore people going to the kansas fest so i think like mike whalen i saw might ask him some more about commodore stuff see if i can understand a little bit more so article, accurate timing in Atari BASIC by John Navas. So four next loops aren't really accurate at all, especially in Atari BASIC. Every time you look up a line number, it's got it searches a linear search from the beginning of the program. So a for loop at the beginning of the program which m- runs much faster than one at the end of the program. In addition, the whatever display mode you're using affects the timing like most notably, if you turn off DMA entirely so you get a black screen, everything runs 40-50% faster. And the various graphics modes have have different amounts of time that they steal away from the 6502 so this is an article talking about the system timers and how to use those there's an article about extending mae and i can't remember where i just heard about this mae is an assembler and maybe it was one of uh, kevin's interviews recently i can't remember but there's somebody was talking about using this assembler and here's an article about extending it inside atari column by bill wilkinson it's how to take over what happens when you hit the system reset button so there's a whole series of steps you got to do or check for if you want to try to do this. It depends on what cartridges is installed or what stuff, what drivers are installed. So it's got a whole checklist of stuff you got to go through. But essentially, it says one of the examples is you can make the system reset a trappable error in Atari Basic. Interesting. Also talks about an interesting little trick. It says if you have an application that needs the joystick that moves only horizontally, you can use the paddle trigger commands because they use the same lines on the joystick port. So paddle trigger 0 and paddle trigger 1 correspond to left and right on the joystick. It says, unfortunately, no such happy coincidence exists for reading the vertical joystick switches. He was on to talk about dissonances. Basically, the uh, frequencies that you can generate with the sound generator. You can hook two of the channels together to make a 16-bit sound. I mean, the downside, of course, is that instead of going from four voices, you go to two. But then you can get much more accurate frequencies, so you can reproduce sounds a little bit better. Because it's kind of well known that with only... 256 divisors for the, the frequency, you can't quite get exact sounds for all the the, perf- the notes for um, on the musical scale. They're not quite perfect. And now we go, here's part two of the Atari Microsoft Basic review by Jerry White. So it's a continuing comparison between Atari Basic, Basic A+, Plus by OSS, and Microsoft Basic. And despite the title being Atari Microsoft Basic, he re- really seems to be more bullish on Basic A+, just because it has all the player missile graphics stuff, and sort of more tuned to the Atari itself, where Microsoft BASIC is, I guess, a more typical implementation of Microsoft BASIC than anything else. Just a one-page little review. And that's about it. On the back, there's an ad for the Commodore VIC-20 with the less creepy version of William Shatner on the back. The ad sort of, (laughs) it's a bit disingenuous. So they compare the VIC-20 with the Atari 400, and it's less money. And instead of just showing the amount of RAM that it has in the base model, it says maximum RAM memory. And maximum round of the VIC-20 is 32K. Of course, it ships with 5K, so you can't really do a lot about it with that. It says the maximum for the Atari 400 is 16K, which is wrong. So, truth in advertising. Ugh, those Commodore people. Displayable characters. It says the VIC-20 has 512. It says the Atari only has 256. Well, technically, I guess the Atari would have... Well, yeah, it's 256 because it's inverse. But really, it's 256 or infinite because you can define your own character sets. I don't know that you can do that with the VIC-20. But yeah, that's me. That's me probably not having truth in advertising. So, yeah, I'll shut up. So Computer and Video Games, this is issue number 6, April 1982, 75 pence. It's got a really disturbing picture of a Medusa on the cover. It must be a pinball backdrop, because the, the title of the magazine says Pinball Bounces Back. In the arcade section, they have Tips on Battlezone and Space Duel. There's Amadar, which I'm sure I've played, but I don't recall. Ladybug, which I have played, I don't really like that much. They covered it on um 10 pence arcade fairly recently. Thing I didn't like about Ladybug I remember is that you kind of you kind of get stuck in the middle of passage. Like you try to turn left a little bit too soon, it'll, Ladybug, oh, it'll turn left, but it's not going anywhere. So that killed me more than a few times. Interesting. Yeah, this is definitely a UK magazine. There's an ad. It says "sex in your computer," and then it has an ad for a company. That looks like it's called Holdco. But there's a game called the Naughty One, and on this ad, there's a, a you know pencil drawing of a naked woman, which would not have flown at all in the in North American scene. So yeah, it's. Yeah, that would not have made it on a newsstands here. You know, America, well, still now to a slightly lesser extent, but still, you know, we'll blow up whatever you want, show dismembered people and all sorts of violence, but nakedness is a no-no. Regardless, seeing that ad, it was like, I was unexpected. <laughs> I was unexpected. I was not thinking that there would be like a drawing of a naked woman on a computer magazine. Still, I was kind of back to my, you know, teenage self I was kind of looking around I was like, is anybody watching me? No. Okay. Turn the page fast. You know, oh, I didn't see that. Don't know what you're talking about. Lots of basic programs, not much for the Atari. Although, again, on the back cover is this ad for Maplin, which is the Atari distributor in the UK. And Kevin interviewed him quite a while ago on the interview series. The name of the guy actually escapes me, but if I find it, I will put a link in the show notes. Here's Creative Computing. This is volume 8, number 4 for April, $82, 2 bucks 95 on the cover price. It's a picture of an outer space scene with sort of things in various incorrect perspectives, like there's a really, really huge robot looking guy or cyborg in the background that's much much bigger than the the building and the spaceship in the foreground planets just over its shoulder are seem to be touching its shoulder and sort of in the close foreground is a really tiny city with the the cyborg guy dragging his finger along creating this sort of canyon out of the the dirt and rock subtitle is our robot friends hmm the upper sash is a special 12 page april fools parody other text includes uh Columns for the Atari and the in-depth evaluations of 25 new products. Computers in education, 3D plotting. The challenging strategy game of unnamed name. Hmm. Let's see. Ad for VIC-20, the friendly computer with no William Shatner. So it's friendly without the William Shatner picture. In the table of contents, there's some stuff on the Atari using discs with Atari Basic. And the Outpost Atari. There's an ad for Castle Wolfenstein, which by Muse Software, which I can't tell you how impressive that was on the Apple II when I, at the time. It was before I had an Atari, and it was, yeah, really amazing. So you had that, that large, bright guy that you know walked across the room and would open up chests and stuff, looking for was it, ammo or guns or things. And yeah, I mean, now you look at it, and it's, it's really not that impressive, but when you didn't have much to compare it to, it was pretty amazing. Another ad for the Atari Star Wars. That's the common ad, I guess, in this group of magazines. All the reviews so far seem to be Apple-centric. A bunch of games reviewed, but yeah, they're all apple mean, so I remember going to magazine or going to libraries and looking at the creative computings and just looking at, because these these, creative computing always seems to be pretty good about putting screenshots in. And so just seeing some of these screenshots always just drove my imagination. And really until I learned the prices of the Apple II and what we could actually afford only then did it change my mind to get something else. And I'm certainly glad I did because I, I love my Atari article on the international asteroids tournament. So the 1981 international asteroids championship regional playoffs sponsored by Atari they said the 30,000 entrants in all the regions. Looks like there were 25 or so, doesn't give the exact number. Range in age from 11 to 26 was the oldest. A lot of them seemed to be teens. All the American representatives were teenagers, oldest of whom being 15. It doesn't say the rules of the competition exactly. The qualifiers, the two highest regional qualifiers, had 138,000 and 118,000. And the high scores of the tournament itself were about 75,000. So there must have been a time limit, because... Certainly, there are people who can beat that score by quite a lot. Essentially, play for an infinite amount of time. Maybe this is before some of those tricks were figured out, though. Well, I guess then they advanced. Some people advanced to the final, round, and in the final round, the high score was one hundred forty-two thousand nine hundred ten. I don't know. You go read further on the article. Yeah, there's there's apparently the world record had already been set at that point. Some guy played fifty-two hours, amassed twenty-five million points. So yeah, so the lurking tricks seem to be have, have been known. It doesn't say what the time limit. Was because there must have been a time limit. Hmm. Next article of interest is using disks with Atari Basic. Talking about using file numbers and the note and point commands in Basic. How to access records on you know fixed format data files, that kind of stuff. An ad for the Apple Fest again. There's an uh, April Fool's insert about twelve pages of April Fool's like articles and stuff. Not quite as in depth as the whole April Fool's episode or issue they had last year. Here's the Outpost Atari by Dave and Sandy Small. It's kind of in theme with the other Atari article in this issue uh, it's talking about the atari disk and you can't talk about ataris and disks without talking about copy protection yeah and unlike the apple which has the programs like locksmith was the program i remember using the apple controls the disk directly there's no cpu like controller in the disk drive unlike the atari so the atari has its own controller and you just talk to it by giving it commands whereas the apple you can control every single thing about the disk drive so Locksmith and things could copy some copy protections, whereas the Atari disk couldn't even write that stuff. You had to go to like a happy drive or some hardware modification to the Atari disk drive before you could get that kind of flexibility with the Atari. So they go over some of those differences in here and then talk about how the Atari actually gets data off by communicating over the serial line. So it's goes plus and minuses, you know, the, well, the whole Atari computer itself is a series of trade offs, right? Yeah, just imagine what the Atari computer would have been without. That requirement to have the big aluminum casing you know, slots in an atari man that would have made a huge difference and finally for me let's look at the micro 6502 6509 journal it's issue 47 april 1982 2 bucks 50 on the cover price international edition 2 bucks 95 uk edition one pound 80 its usual cover where you're looking out from the inside of the monitor looking out so the text is written backward on the screen looking at a picture of some flowers it's the 6809 feature so we'll see how much 6502 stuff we have in this magazine. This may be a short section. The table of contents does show the From Here to Atari column, but there's nothing else in the table of contents. So we'll do a quick flip through here, virtually. For Applefest, there's an article about the 6508, which it says is the new 6502 configuration. I wonder if this became the 6510 that was in the C64, because it says, At long last, there's an improved version of the 6502, the Commodore Semiconductor Group, formerly MOS Technologies has produced the 6508 microprocessor without adding any new instructions. So, how is it different? Hmm. Page 0 and page 1 overlap in the 256 bytes of onboard read-write memory. Hmm. Zero page is further depleted by two addresses used by the IO port? Huh. does not seem very compatible, then, if it's messing with the zero page. A lot of 6809 stuff. Here's a multi-precision addition comparison of 6809 and 6502 programming. And I don't know anything about 6809, although I found a multi-platform disassembler in Python. So I've included that in Omnivore and it can disassemble 6809. And for that matter, assemble 6809. I've got a mini-assembler that is sort of a brute force mini-assembler that I can handle any any of the things it can disassemble. It tries to it uses some heuristics to try to reassemble it that I uh, hacked into that disassembler. So it's got some comparisons for adding some 32-bit numbers in the two um, assembly languages. And 6502 is much more verbose. It takes more commands in the 6502 assembly language than it does in 6809, and consequently more cycles. So clock for clock 6809 is faster, but I'm sure we all like the 6502 better, just because that's what we're used to. Here's the column from Here to Atari by James Caprell So, again, yeah, I'm not sure how, f- how much he continues doing this since he's now running Antic, but since the industry's lead time, you know, magazine publishers take, you know, three months or whatever to get an article out, I'm sure they had a backlog of articles. But yeah, we'll see how long this continues. It's an article about how to understand what happens when a character appears on your TV screen. So where it resides in ROM, how you access the character set. So it says when you press a key an IRQ interrupt is generated. It calls the interrupt service routine, which saves the state, does some jumps, do some bookkeeping, processes the debounce. It says the bounce is associated with a mechanical vibration caused by the key closure. A bounce can appear to the system as several keystrokes instead of just one. So it implements a software delay of 20... Milliseconds, so it initiates a, a counter to to start that. In order to do a keyboard code, sets the attract mode, sets the auto repeat timer flag, and then once it gets through all that, then the keyboard handler takes over, which is part of the I/O control block um, stuff. So sort of the the drivers for all the Atari hardware can be impl- are implemented in these I/O control blocks, and then it shows how the key code is translated into the internal code, which is the, the tasky code, and the internal code are different on the Atari, and it shows how it, tells how it's mapped to the character set, and then plots to the screen yeah, that's a nice little summary. And that's it for me.
1: Here's Michael with SoftSide. Hey, Pod Peoples. Welcome again to this month's coverage of SoftSide Magazine. It's April 1982, Volume 5, Number 7. Price is still $3. This month's cover features several images, mostly consisting of home computers and keyboards, but the largest image is of a hand writing with a quill, the words word processing in orange at the bottom of the page. That's right. This episode is all about writing and the tools that were available to you at the time. As far as the cover art style, using my Photoshop filters as a guide, my best guess is they're using a style called Poster Edge, which generally gives you that thick ink pen look. The usual cover artist has been Bill Geist. For this cover, the magic editor and art director, Nancy LaPointe, takes over the illustration work. For those new to SoftSide, the input section is where readers' comments are posted, and this month's shows the Atari readers are really showing their interest in this magazine. Out of the 20 letters posted, 8 of them showed interest in the Atari. Some of these comments were more articles for beginner users, requests for assembly language programs, more programs that show off the power of the Atari's graphics, and user-submitted program contests. I'll be interested to see if SoftSite fulfills some of these requests. I, too, would like to see assembly language programs and programs that take advantage of the Atari's graphics capabilities. Up to this point, the Atari programs look better than most of the systems featured, but they don't look like they're taking advantage of the machine's potential. I don't usually read the outgoing mail section because it usually doesn't contain any information that I think the listeners of this podcast would be interested in. But if you've been following my reviews of SoftSide, you'll know that the magazine supplied a text editor for readers called Microtext. Its purpose was twofold. Teach readers how to write a simple text editor. Allow developers who submitted programs to include an electronic copy of their documentation. This experiment, as SoftSide calls it, appears to have some limitations, so the magazine has decided to go back to Killing Trees. The good news for all you interested in the program, an update to microtext is included in this issue. Very appropriate for an issue covering word processing. There's a review of a book called Introduction to Word Processing by Hal Glatzer, published by Cybex. The original price was $12.95, and this review was done by Dave Albert. Now, Dave says this is a non-technical book that covers word processing from electronic typewriters to mainframes. Its goal is to help those new to the technology to understand the capabilities of word processing equipment. The author starts off with what is word processing and obeys the cardinal rule of showing, not telling. He goes on to explain that options are available in this realm and never suggests one over another, simply detailing the advantages and disadvantages inherent in each. And it looks like you can get this book on Amazon sold by Silver Arch Books for about 26 bucks. That price doesn't include shipping. Under the article section, Word Processing and Art in Transition by Tom Stanton. If you are ever interested in the history of the written and printed word, this article should give you a nice entry into it. The article covers a lot of the history around this subject. It starts off by revealing that the first word processes were scribes, legions of men and women who followed their masters and wrote of religion, business, taxation, and law. It covers the evolution of the technology around writing and printing, gives some background on the companies, cultures, and people who have made the advances in the area, as well as a rough timeline of when all these things occurred. I found this to be a very interesting read. If that sort of thing interests you, I recommend you check it out. It's only two and a half pages, so it shouldn't take you too long to read through it. I decided to group all the typed in programs into one section. I'll start off by the first program, Microtext 1.2. This is a 16K word process for the Atari, Apple, and TRS-80 model 1 and 3. This is an update to the 1.1 version, featured back in January 1982 edition. Looks like they made some minor updates, but unless you're interested in how to write a word processing program, I'd skip this one. We have a user-submitted program, Crypto, by Jerry Amott of Rochester, Michigan. This program allows you to select a stored phrase, and then it encodes it, and displays it twice on the screen. One for reference, and one that you will change while you decode it. To decode the phrase, you enter a letter to be changed, and a letter to be substituted. Seems like an interesting program, and a programming exercise. We have Renumbering for the Atari by Frank Roberts. This takes 16K. Have you ever wanted to renumber your basic programs? This little utility does just that. I found three other programs on Atari Mania like this, but only one had something that you could download. This program is currently not on Atari Mania, but um, I'll try to get it up there pretty soon. Starbase 13 by Mark Lewis Baldwin. Looks to be like a copy of the arcade game's Space Fortress, published by Bally. You control a laser-armed fortress in space, obviously. Ships randomly come from four points on the edge of the screen. As they pop out, they quickly fire their weapon and retreat. Use your joystick to aim in one or four directions and shoot with the fire button. The game is for one or two players. For the two-player game, one person aims and the other one shoots. Again, not on Atari Mania, but as before, I'll try to get up there as soon as possible. The Atari Banner Machine by Alan J. Zett. This program takes 24K. This allows you to make large banners for your printer. This program looks pretty limited, and since we have the Print Shop by Broderbund, I'd suggest using that program over this one. Sheldon Lehman does a review of three word processors for Atari. Um, the first one is Text Wizard by DataSoft Incorporated. It was 32K and originally for $99.95. The second one is is Letter Perfect by LKJ Enterprise. It took 24K and original price was 149.95. And the third one is Word Processor by Atari Incorporated. It required 48K and price was 149.95. So this was the infancy of word processors, so features were very limited compared to today's word processing programs. But with the price of printers becoming more affordable and the advantages over typewriters, there has been a huge upsurge in the software offering. Although some programs do some things better over the others, it looks like the Atari Word Processor offers the most features. Of course, the Inverse Ataski podcast reviews business software for Text Wizard, actually it's LetterWizard the follow-up, that's show one, episode nineteen, Letter Perfect. Show 1, Episode 2, and Atari's word processor, Show 1, Episode 1. I listened to all three of them, and Wade did an excellent job covering all three of those programs. Under the New Products section, the Data Saver by Questa Systems. This is a UPS, or uninterruptible, power supply, which protects against power surges and spikes. The original cost was $395. The company actually still exists and is still located in the same business park, but right now they only repair three models of their counter and interrogators devices and the website is about one page and only offers one image and a very little text hockey by gamma software this is a 16k assembly language game it allows for two three or four players it came on disk and cassette for about thirty bucks It's available on Atari mania with a score of five out of ten with four votes from the looks of it, the graphics aren't that impressive And if you're looking for um, a hockey game, I'd suggest Major League Hockey or Showdown Hockey. Atari Mania gives this game a rarity of 9, so if you're a collector, I'd suggest keeping your eyes open for this game. Well, that concludes my coverage of SoftSide Magazine for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please tell Rob what you thought about this segment, and what areas of SoftSide you'd like to hear more about, as well as of less of. Also tune in to the Atari XEGES Cart by Cart podcast to hear Bill Kendrick... David Facetic and myself, where we discuss and review cartridges for the XE gaming system. Now back to Rob. And now, the game I've been waiting to cover.
0: This is Jumpman, my favorite game of all time. It's a game for one to four players using the joystick controller, although there is some keyboard that you need to set up. So if you're building, say, a main cabinet that happens to play Atari 8-bit games, you also need to be able to map the keys one through eight for the speed level of the game, and then one through four for the number of players. So you can't get away with a joystick only. And it does use start, selection option, of course. It's a platform game. You control Jumpman. Bet you couldn't guess that. So you run and jump on these girders. You can climb ladders, climb ropes, descend other ropes. And the idea is you try to con- defuse these bombs that have been placed out all over these levels. You diffuse them by touching them. And that's all you need. So interestingly, you can fall off one of the girders. And ordinarily, a fall will kill you. And if you fall a certain number of pixels, Jumpman will turn into a... Sort of crunch jump man, and you'll get the jump man falling sound. But if you happen to touch a bomb on the way, you'll collect it and defuse it. And if that happens to be the last bomb on the level, you won't. It won't cost you a life, and you'll go to the next level. So there are certain levels that you can use that strategically. One of the interesting things about this game is it has 30 levels, actually 32, but we'll get into that a little bit later, which is many more levels than a normal platform game has. You consider like Donkey Kong in the arcade has four. And even Minor 2049er, which had a lot, had 10, but this is, you know, three times that. It's a huge number of levels, and it was just it was amazing to see the variety that that Randy Glover came up with. If you listen to the Antic interview series, you will know that Kevin Sabat and I did interview Randy Glover and talked about his history with the game, how he came up with it. Um I had a lot of fun doing that. I'm again I have to thank Kevin for including me on that interview. Interestingly, when we talked to him, he mentioned Minor Twenty Forty er by name, saying that had he gotten Jumpman out Before Minor 2049er, he thinks he would have had much more success, but that Minor 2049er really affected the total business that uh, Jumpman did. It still sold well, and I think he said he made several hundred thousand dollars in royalties, but because the novelty of so many levels wasn't quite as new as it would have been had Minor 2049er not come out before it, Randy seemed to think that it had affected the sales potential of Jumpman. But still, by any measure, it was still quite a successful game. I'm not going to cover some of the history that he went over, just because you can listen to that from... His, you know, from his actual words, you can hear him talk about it. So yeah, yeah, definitely go listen to that interview. There's a lot of cool things about the design. You know, like he talks about a little bit about Jumpman Number no. One, the game he showed to companies and eventually Epics. And he's still, he doesn't, he's not quite sure that Jumpman Number no. One how it got out there, but it's available on uh, Atari Mania. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. But he seemed to be pretty sure that that's the same version that he showed around, but it was never released. You know, he re- ended up recoding it and increased it. I think it had 10 levels or something, and he then increased it to 30. And not only did it have 30 levels, but it had a whole bunch of interesting things. Each level could have some special feature about it. Like, vampire level has bats that are that triggered after you collect a certain number of bombs. I will use bomb and peanut sort of interchangeably here. Kevin, growing up, thought they looked like peanuts, and so he started calling it Peanuts. And then when Kevin and I started working together on our Jumpman project, that sort of language took hold. And, well, also because, you know, in this day and age, you don't want to be saying bomb in random places, so saying peanut is... Probably a better idea. This way we could talk about Jumpman, say, on an airplane. Anyway, one of the unique features of Jumpman is these triggers that happen, these trigger functions. So collecting one of the peanuts can then trigger the maze to change. So the platform could lose some girders, or you you can add some ladders or ropes. And depending on the level, it could have some other feature that happened. like the robot levels move when you collect a peanut. The game is divided into three sort of groups of levels. There's the beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels. You can start at either one of the at either of those three sections, or you can do a randomizer, which always starts you at robots two and then will send you to one of the r- levels randomly. Or you can do the grand loop where you start at level one and go all the way through the end of the game, which yeah, I've never solved that. In fact, I think there's a few levels I still have not seen. There's a small manual that goes into the game. You can play up to four players, but you all share the same joystick. So it only uses the joystick in the first joystick port. So one to four players. And you'll have to complete each level before it goes. the control goes to the next player. So the first player can lose several jump men before the second player even gets a chance to start. The speed is an interesting feature, something that a lot of other games don't have, but you can choose the speed of the whole game. So it speeds up how fast Jumpman moves, how fast the bullets move, how fast any of the critters on the level move. And there's no prompt for this, but as the level comes up, if you press the number 1 through 8, that'll choose your speed, where 1 is super crazy fast and 8 is really slow. You start with seven Jumpman lives, which is a lot more than an arcade game normally does. But of course, you're not paying quarters here. And this this game really does feel a lot like an arcade. It's got the attract screen. It has this little demo level that Jumpman runs through as it's waiting for the user to press a key or something. Also, something that I found as I got further in the code is that there's this background timer. It uses actually the attract mode timer. When that timer hits a couple minutes, it if you've not done any input or you know if you've like left the joystick, set it down and walked away or something you don't have some input in a couple of minutes, it sends it back right to the demo screen. And also, if you're having a bad game, you can abort it at any time by hitting select, it'll send it right back to the menu. But it's interesting how he implemented this. Essentially, there's a, a subroutine you can jump to at any point that will just send you back to the beginning. And it kind of, you know, resets the stack and everything, so there's there's a lot of non-structured programming about this, but it was typical at the time. You know, there are jumps everywhere, and there are, of course, plenty of subroutines that are called, but they all go back to, like, sort of this main routine in the normal time and all the game logic is processed in the vertical blank but perhaps I'm getting a little ahead of myself back to the manual it talks about how you move jump man you use the joystick to left and right to walk on the girders or up or down some of the little slope girders pushing up and down climbs ladders once you get on an up rope or down rope you're moving that direction you can't change that direction at all you can just jump off that's it you jump when you hit the button so if you're not moving either direction you just jump straight if you're pushing a direction or another you'll jump that direction The scoring is one thing, it's a bit random, there's some levels you score a lot of points and some levels you don't. I think that's one thing when we talked to Randy in the interview, he thought if you were to do it again, he would change the scoring to be a little more consistent. And the coolest thing about the manual is the additional hints. So it says, from Randy Glover, Jumpman's author, Jumpman is the ultimate test of your reflexes versus instant visual surprises. It's impossible for a new player to remember all the ugly hazards and demonic forces his or her Jumpman will meet. Only experience, playing it again and again will gain you the skill and proficiency you'll need. And he lists six hints. So the first is that each of the levels can be completed without losing a jump man. So I guess once you know (laughs) what you need to do, you can do it correctly. He says when you first play, try it at medium to slow speed, so 4 through 8. And then if you can complete the level, then try it on the higher speed. This implies, interestingly, that I didn't really notice, but that the bonus points are counted down in real time, so that if you complete it using the fast... Speed, you'll actually get more bonus points because you'll complete it in less, you know, wall clock time. His third tip it says, Jumpman can leap amazing distances. See how far you can make him jump. The fourth tip says, Watch more than Jumpman on the screen, especially when he's vulnerable, like climbing a rope or ladder or at the end of a girder, or as I found at the edges of the screen. See so the bullets, which we haven't really mentioned, they're generally on levels, there are up to four bullets that can fly around, and so they'll move slowly in one direction. And when they cross the plane of Jumpman, they'll, you'll hear a firing sound. And it'll quickly point in your direction, so you've got to jump out of the way. His fifth tip is try to remember each level's actions, the structural layout and the obstacles. In other words, take notes. (laughs) And six, he says, most important, don't give up. Jumpman's a tough, sometimes frustrating challenge. Play and play again. Stick with it. You'll be amazed how fast you'll be able to conquer all 30 levels. Well, I don't know, I'm not sure about that, but some people might. Not me, though. But I played the heck out of this game. And I remembered it so well that it, it was a motivation for me designing Omnivore. I talked about Omnivore last time, and it's really the reason behind my slowing down on the output of the podcast was because I've been working on this editor. So it's a, it's a basic hex editor, but I've added features, like there's the map editor for Getaway, and I have been recently working on a level editor for Jumpman. But this whole Jumpman project has been a collaboration with Kevin Savitz, and I recorded a little bit with him. And where we talk about our love for Jumpman and our project. So here's that. And I know you described some of this in your book, which if everybody hasn't read it, you should go read Terrible Nerd. But how did you first hear about Jumpman and
2: how did you get it? Let's see. Um, When I was in sixth grade, so I was, you know, 12 years old. So I think I had just turned 12, maybe 13. um, My... This, the summer after sixth grade, my dad and I took a, a trip to Europe and he was a travel agent. So we got some great deals on things and we went to uh, Spain and Portugal and Morocco and England for like a two week tour. And it was great. And after that was done at the coming up at the end of the summer, two things happened. First of all, I, I, my dad's birthday was coming up and I wanted to like get him a like nice gift for, for having taken me on that trip. And, and also I probably wanted a computer game to play myself. (laughs) And I had some money left over from like, um, souvenir money that I hadn't spent from from the trip. You know, i had been whatever, given some money to buy trinkets or whatever. And I didn't. So I, anyway, still had some money. So I went to this computer store in, uh, Agura, California. And I, Went in there. And I was like, "I I want a great game for the Atari," and the salesperson was just like, you, "This Jumpman game is great," and they didn't they couldn't demo it for me. But he showed me the box, and he was just like, "This is like the best game. You're gonna love this game," and it was fifty bucks or something, you know, expensive. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I bought it, which I think makes it really the only piece of software I ever bought, because. My, you know, my dad bought some software, but we mostly pirated stuff. And then, but I wasn't in charge of, I didn't buy the software. <laughs> so really, anyway, so I bought this game and uh, I gave it to him for his first birthday. And it was, I mean, the, the sales, the, the computer guy was right. I mean, this game was amazing. And my dad and I played it together for hours. Um, and it was just like always very exciting when a new level showed up and you know we could see something we hadn't seen before um i still vividly for some time remember the the first time roll me over came up (laughs) the last level that we saw because we're playing randomizer and that just happened to be the last one and it was just like oh here well there's another level and oh yeah this is hard (laughs) it's just um uh so anyway so we play this game and and so you know, sometime later, a couple weeks, a few weeks later, I was back in that computer store and I said, I went in there and I saw the same salesperson. I was just like, thanks for the recommendation. <laughs> and that was, it's a great game. You were totally right. Salesman was just like, I've never played that game before. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, <laughs> just a, a total salesman move. Huh? Yeah, totally. Totally a salesman move. Um, sold me this game on, that he had never played before, and but it turned out he was right, and it is a great game. And so that's how I discovered Jumpman, just based on a recommendation of someone who had never played it, I guess. Um, and that was really one of the two games that my dad and I played consistently for years: Jumpman and Mule. with yeah. Those are the two. Um, and yeah, I just and it was uh. It was just always a always a good time. Just had hours of fun with me and my dad playing that. What about you? I, you know, it's funny. I don't remember
0: when I got it exactly. Um, when I was, you know, I'd grown up with, with the Atari. There weren't a lot of people that I knew that had Ataris, but we had, there was a, a few of my friends had them. And there was one hobby store close that sold Ataris. And so, that you know, they had various software, but I don't remember them ever carrying Jumpman, and so I got it as just one of the one of these, you know, on a pirated disc. You know, all the the discs that you get with the, you know, you'd go to swap meets or I don't know if they if they had the, the same kind of user groups. And um, when you were growing up, but we had we'd like we'd go to a place and there'd be like ten or twenty people would bring their computers and they'd set them up and you just kind of go around with discs and you just swap stuff stuff that you had that you could use for trade value, stuff that they had you'd
2: pick. And so I just picked up yeah. a copy of Jumpman somewhere. I never got to go to anything like that because because I only saw my dad, you know, on every other weekend. And oh, it, right. it just because I didn't have 100% Atari time. And you, I totally, so I, yeah, I didn't get to do anything, any copy parties like that.
0: Because you had, uh, was an Apple? Uh, your, was your other computer that you used? I
2: had a an Apple IIc after a while, yeah. And a, a Ti-99, oh, okay. which was... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've never used. one. I can see why I like the Atari so much because I had these yeah. far lesser machines. Far so. lesser machines. Yes. All right. So you got you got it at a copy party. Yeah,
0: and it was because you know you get you end up getting probably you you buy new, new boxes of discs so tell like ten discs or whatever and you bring them one you fill them up with stuff and you take a while to go through them and I remember stopping on Jumpman and thinking you know this is amazing it's fantastic it's just yeah. Mind-blowingly good. And, um, I remember, let me see if I can find this. This was, oh shoot. Where's that article? So back, I don't know if anybody listening to this remembers libraries, but we used to have libraries where you go and they have computer magazines and stuff. So I, I have this photocopied thing from the January 84 issue of creative computing, which
2: I've, I don't have
0: that issue yet, but it's, a
2: uh, Oh, mastering Jetman. Yeah, yeah. This one's on, this one is on archive.org. Um, yeah, and it's a long article, as I recall, yeah. and they kind of give you hints on doing every level. Yep. Up to up into a point, it gets to like level 20 and, I don't know, they ran out of space or got bored. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you can figure out the rest of yourself. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's like maybe they weren't good enough, you know. They were saying that, um, yeah, we'll leave you some, some fun to figuring things out yourself. Oh, so not to spoil it for you. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I went to the library, copied this, and I've I've had this ever since. I should have just bought the magazine, but I had such limited funds back then. But yeah, I, I remember just following this thing and tried. They had patterns for the first what eight or so levels, and trying to see how far I can get. And unlike you, I think you had finished every level except for level thirty
2: until recently. Right. I mean, I had I had finished level thirty. But I hadn't, not in the optimal way, you know. I, I, because mean, I, I, had actually finished the, uh, the, the grand, what's it called when you do all thirty levels and, um, in a row. I, I had done that, but in level thirty, you've got to get to the second hidden screen, and then you've got to get all the, the peanuts on on that screen. And so I had finished the game, but not really finished that level, and and gotten all four of the special peanuts. So. Um, until, yeah, recently when I <laughs> made a video of it yeah. which I'll include a link to the show notes yeah. then you said you um, you hadn't seen all of the levels until recently right, yeah, I, I
0: never finished the game for sure I I was able to get through most of the, what is it the second, the intermediate but there were still some, I don't think I, there, there, I think there might be a few levels that I haven't seen
2: you know, there's a really cool level editor that will allow you to see all the levels.
0: I've heard, I've heard of that. <laughs> Somebody wrote that. Who wrote that? not some, yeah, some guy. Some guy. Some um, guy. Yeah, but it's just... I mean, it's amazing game. This is... You know, everybody says Star Raiders is their favorite game on the 8-bit. Well, is sort of the one that sort of entices them. But this is by far my favorite game on the 8-bits. Um. It's the only one that I would ever devoted this much time to figuring out. In case listeners haven't heard yet, Kevin and I have spent quite a lot of time reverse engineering Jumpman. We've had a we've made a lot of progress, and shortly we'll release some documentation. Or depending on when you listen to this, we've all will already have released it.
2: Yeah, what was your what was your goal in reverse engineering this? And- uh, what was my goal? Um, basically, I wanted. Well, you know, I know I have I have an email that I we we discussed it, and I, if I can find it, I will tell you exactly what my <laughs> goals were. Um, the goal, well, I, I wanted to know more about how this game worked for sure. I mean, that was, but when we started discussing this, I remember. I mean, I actually found the email from from April of 2015 um, to you, and and I had the. The the last thing I put was crazy pipe dream level editor. Level <laughs> editor was the crazy pipe dream, and like we're here. It's only taken uh, sixteen months, <laughs> but you know we we did it. I mean you did it, and and uh, I helped to grease the wheels in a small way. So yeah, my so my my goal. Let's see, I had a laundry list of ideas for Jumpman hacks, and I I said um, start randomizer on level 30 so I could finally learn to solve Grand Puzzle 3. <laughs> so that was my first thing on my list. It's just like I wanted to have the completion of being able to know, know how to solve that level. And we did that. I mean, um, we could start on any level. Um, start randomizer on any actual random level. Uh, we didn't really do that, but I feel like I mean I would like to see you hack it so that randomizer actually starts on a random level and not rather robots yeah. two all the time, yeah, yeah, I mean it can't be hard. I don't understand why you did that uh number three was never get mystery maze <laughs> um number four was start mystery maze without the curtain so it what wasn't a mystery, and that's something that I which you did, I did. Yeah. um number five uh was play the demo screen, which okay, I did plot, yeah um. And uh, I said, I really believe this is possible. I have strong evidence it's an actual level with usual game physics because I've seen Jetman die on the demo screen. And then the final one was Crazy Pipe Dream, level editor. (laughs) So I guess those were my goals. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I think they're all achievable (laughs) if they they haven't already been achieved. Right, yeah. I mean, for my part of it, I have what you did with building omnivore and the level editor is absolutely amazing. Uh, and I don't know anybody else who could have done it, but the part that I felt like I really contributed was figuring out the memory map. Um, a lot of the memory map, which was, I didn't have, the only tool I have was omnivore. And basically for a lot of it, I would, like visually just like look for patterns. Mm-hmm. Just like, I'm looking at this code, just like, wow, this section looks like something's going on here. It looks like a there's this pattern going on for 64 bytes. What is it? And I'd start changing things and, you know, cause and effect. And um, and that's that's the first thing I started was, the first thing I started being able to do was figuring out, wow, if I change this and the girder's not as long, okay, well, this byte must, must mean we're drawing a girder. And it took weeks. It took weeks to figure that yeah, out. Yeah, was a lot
0: of perseverance with uh, <laughs> just changing stuff and rebooting and right. You know, the...
2: and so I'd, I'd be looking at a at a at a at a level, and then you know it was just be like, okay, I have this section of bytes. Well, what's this next section of bytes do? And and uh, it was yeah, it was just oh, here's the this is the colors, and here's the uh, whatever. So there was lots of and, and there's still a few bytes. I mean, maybe like. Eight or sixteen that we still don't know what they right, are. Right, yeah. Maybe the, they're not it, but yeah.
0: The levels are made up in a really interesting fa- fashion. When we talked to Randy, he designed them to be sort of modular, so you can drop in one level in in the des- designated memory location, and then you can drop in another level, and the the rest of the code will pick up all these bits in the in the right spot, and we'll know where to put you know ladders, girders. It'll know what the the number of peanuts to gather. It'll it'll know what the score values are. I mean, so he he made it in a very modular format and, you know, some of that certainly at the point where, when when you were looking at this, we didn't know any of that. I mean, we, well, we knew it was modular, but we didn't know where anything was. And so you had to just, yeah, really do a lot of just really time intensive hacking to figure out what was going on. And, you know, as we got further in the code, you know, in, in the disassembly, we could sort of see some things that, that weren't obvious and, we're able to make, you know, more inferences and, and then we're able to do some, some code changes to support some of these things, like starting at any given level. And, you know, we, fu- we finally figured out how the music worked and, you know, all sorts of stuff that, it mm-hmm. took a long time, but yeah, I think, you know, my goals in getting into this were I, I, you know, through the podcast, I've been saying one one of my goals is to write a game. And I always thought I wanted to write a game like Jumpman, but, you know, different, you know, maybe, I don't know, somehow better, but that's a pie in the sky dream, really, because I don't know that I could really improve on Jumpman that much. And that's really what got me to think, it's like, yeah, if I can't improve on Jumpman, why do why do anything? And the idea that maybe we could figure out enough about Jumpman to get more levels out of it, to make it a, a game that we can continue to play and, like, enjoy that way. Yeah, I... I really sort of, after you know, getting further and further into the code and kind of getting some of my 6502 assembly back, I was just, I was pretty, really, really impressed with how well he laid out the code. Um, You can tell in bits of the code where he had to like cut it off because you can only compile a certain amount of time, a certain amount of bytes at once. And so there's a lot of like jumping around. It wouldn't be considered good programming style now because there's essentially a lot of go-tos everywhere. But that's what you had to work with when you're limited on a. Essentially, he was writing for a 32k machine, um, but so all those all those limitations he was forced to forced to work with. And thinking about it, if I had to try to code something up myself, I there, I couldn't improve on it. So why not improve on or attempt to improve on something that's already there and you know create new things based on this old game? So I don't, it, it redefined my my goal from trying to write my own game to trying to extend Jumpman. And, yeah, with your yeah. with our uh, sort of combined interests, I think it, you know, just like people say, like, it's easier podcasting with a co-host. It's easier working on a project like, like this with a co-conspirator, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, and I, I'm i sort of pleased at how much progress we've made, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to, what you know, what's to come.
2: Me too. I mean, there, for as much as we've done, there's... There's still some mysteries. I mean, there's definitely oh, yeah, lots. areas that we don't know how something works or, you know, I mean, we or someone could go in there and make new music, you know, between levels or, yeah. and of course, make new levels themselves. And, um, yeah, there's still, there's a lot that we, we know the, the important bits, I think, but there's still a lot that maybe...
0: Yeah, there's a lot of details that are still
2: missing. Details, yeah. that's the
0: word. We have, yeah. yeah, I think we've we've certainly got a good start with the, you know, the over, how the code lay, laid out. I mean, we have the whole memory map in, um, yeah, in in broad terms. There's a lot of little subroutines that we don't know what they do yet, but there's a lot of subroutines that we do. And we've been able, been able to to hack around with some, and, you know, you've included some custom code in one of your levels that you've designed. And we sort of know all the hooks anyway. Um, so yeah, now we're just, we're at the point, I think, where we can sort of get other people involved, perhaps.
2: Yay. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, invite other people to this party. That's right.
0: Kevin and I have been working hard on this, and finally, we are going to release publicly our documentation on Jumpman. So we're going to release, here at Kansas Fest, is our sort of official release date. We're going to send out and post our our reverse engineering notes which include let me pull up. twenty-eight pages yes. right now. <laughs> Twenty eight pages. We have the jump we have the memory map for the for jump man. We've got the examples of the levels. We've got um, some sample code that Kevin's written to help to create custom stuff. We've got info about the music. We've got all sorts of stuff that we're gonna publish. We'll create an Atari age thread to post all this. Also, what I am going to announce is I have a version of Omnivore that can edit Jumpman levels. So I'm going to post that as well. You can. It's a graphical editor. It's a point-and-click editor. You'll be able to see a Jumpman screen, draw on it, put all the the bombs to collect, be able to set all your
2: parameters, name it, and save it out. That's going to be, yeah, it's a, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't stress this enough. I've done, I have created several Jumpman levels now myself. Um, the ones I did by hand took eight hours, eight hours. means I mean, literally sitting on an airplane, no other distractions. <laughs> it took me more than eight hours to make what I considered a good level of, you know, a, a quality level, not just a one girder and one ladder sort of thing, <laughs> um, with the level editor, 10 15 minutes and it's fun <laughs> it's amazing i mean this literally made, you don't need to read the 28 page documentation to make a level using omnivore it's so good so so easy and fun
0: yeah so that hopefully the barrier of entry is low we'd like to get this out to people and so we are going to announce a contest here we are going to gather up best 32 levels that we can find that people submit to us, we're going to create a Jump Man 2, a, a full new set of 32 levels that—that that is the sequel that we that everybody always wanted that we're going to try to create. Yeah, so we'll start an Atari Age thread about this new contest. We're going to start it now, and the deadline is going to be October 22nd, midnight.
2: Choose your midnight. <laughs> right, yeah. Midnight Pacific <laughs> Time <laughs> on, uh, yeah, 22nd. And the reason is that uh, both Rob and I are going to be at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, and uh, we're going to, so we'll be able to sit down and sit down together and and try all, all any all the levels that that are submitted.
0: Yeah. So the so Kevin and I
2: will be the the final final arbiters of the level. We're we're gonna be the judges. Yep. So yeah, we we want you to you know create the create some Jumpman levels, create levels you've always wanted to play. Um. There's going to be two categories for uh, just where I. Two, two categories. One will be for levels uh, without custom code that are just made with the level editor, um, and that can include easily like you, you you take a a peanut and something appears or, or disappears, and and that you can all do that in level editor without any custom code. And the second category is levels with custom code, which Involves you know a little bit of 6502 assembly language programming, which not everyone can do, and that's fine. So that's why it's kind of a separate category.
0: Um, yeah, if you're interested in the custom code, Kevin has one out there already, and there's a f- two, two now. Oh, Those are two oh, great. So Kevin has yeah. two out there. There is some that that is one reason you might want to use the uh, reverse engineering notes that we released, because in there you can look at some of the levels that already have custom code, and you might be able to pull some code out of there and learn from it. Uh, modify it or maybe use it directly or you can look in the uh, memory map of of jumpman itself and look for some entry points that the the real code does
2: so yeah so two, two different categories and uh, yeah we're gonna pick thirty two uh, and and we will assemble them into jumpman two we'll kind of we'll pick the order and decide what difficulty you know beginner intermediate whatever and uh, and then we'll put them out put it out there for. The world to enjoy, use to enjoy Jumpman for another thirty years.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's a good point that we're interested in, in levels of all sorts of difficulty. So there will definitely be a place for you know beginner levels that people can use to like get into the game if they've not seen the first one, and then some you know fiendishly clever, outlandishly difficult levels as well. Um, any any style. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Use your imagination. There's a there's a lot of tools available. Randy when he created this you know you've got the, your four basic elements you have girders ladders r- up ropes and down ropes but there's a lot of ways to put those together and it's you're you're drawing on a graphic 7 screen so you can put things in a lot of different positions you're not limited to character boundaries yeah there's a lot of things you can do so we're hoping that that people will really be excited about this as much as as much as we've worked on it we've you know put a lot of effort into it and we
2: hope that you all enjoy it yeah so I'm I'm going to make I by the time you hear this I hopefully will have made a video, a YouTube video demonstrating how to use the the uh the jump man level editor in Omnivore. Just to I'm going to throw together a quick and easy level just so you can like see how it's done. Um hopefully that will lower the barrier to entry even even more. Yeah, and I I
0: think I will I'll put a basic like sort of blank level built right built right into Omnivore. So you'd be able to start it up and pop up with a really simple level that you can start with and edit yourself. Um, I am terrible at writing documentation, but I will probably write a little blurb that we put on the Atari Age post just to like get you started with Omnivore if you've never used it. I mean, Omnivore itself is it can be I don't know intimidating because it, it, it's I don't know, it can do a lot of stuff, but for for using. To create the Jumpman level, it should be easy, just a one-step process to pull up a blank level, and then you'll, you'll be right in the, the graphic editor. You can start drawing right away. So don't be put off by OmniWare saying it's like a 8-bit binary editor or something, It's because it's, yeah, we'll make it easy. We want to make this easy for everybody.
2: Yes, easy and fun. Yes, and fun. And it just occurred to me, I, we were talking earlier about what is in the, the documentation Reverse engineering notes and what isn't something that we haven't really figured out yet is uh, anything to do with player missile graphics. (laughs) So you know, we I don't know how right now to do anything like uh, a level with robots that follow you or anything like that. Yeah, there's there's Uh, several
0: of those. Like uh, what's the there's a really cool level which is follow the leader, I think, mm -hmm. where you've got you know your jump man and then you have these little copies of jump man that start that follow you. I know, I think. We've. I think Kevin, did you mess around with Robots One and you changed the levels and the robots? It like crashed because the robots were expecting the the girders to be in a certain place. Is that right?
2: Uh, I think so. I I crashed that game in so many dozens of ways. <laughs> I, I don't even remember anymore. Oh, um, runs together. Yeah. yeah. But but a lot of them have uh, player missiles. I mean, there's there's uh, let's see the, the ro everything with the robots and Gunfighter and. The Roost and the Vampire and Dragon Slayer and. Uh, invasion and Hailstones. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of them. Um, so you can do. It takes no code or thought to do bullets. That's built into the game. You can just easily tell it, I want no bullets or I want four bullets for a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, anyway, so yeah, hopefully someone will figure that out and share that information. For-
0: yeah. And we. Um- this may be a bit of a longer term goal, but it'd be nice to have like sort of a library of little assembly language routines that we can gather up. And if if people are able to, you know, if if you do decide to design something with, with some custom code in it, if you'd be willing to share that code and we can gather up some of these libraries, that would be great. Um, we probably should get into licensing a little bit. So one of the stipulations, probably the only stipulation of this contest is that when you create a level and submit it to us, you have to agree to submit it in the public domain. We are going to include all this stuff um, in a public domain release of our Jumpman 2. So that means any code that you're going to use, if you do some custom code, then you are... Willing to give us permission to pull that out and put it into a library of code that other people might want to use as well. Right.
2: So, if you want to submit a level or 10, um, two ways you can do it. There'll be an Atari, if you want to do it publicly and you want to show off your level uh, now, um, you c- can submit it to the Atari Age thread that we'll have on the topic and then. That'll be good enough to submit it, and other people can play it in the meantime. Um, and if you want to keep it more private, then you could just email it to uh, email it to Rob, and then we'll kind of hold it close to the chest until the end <laughs> when, when, the, when the contest is over.
0: Yeah, so if you want to email it, it's just my regular feedback address. just feedback at playermissile.com. But either way, we'll, we'll gather up all the entries, and Kevin and I will... will... Sort of collect our thirty-two favorite, and we'll get him out in Jumpman Two.
2: There we go. Yeah.
0: So we're looking forward to all your entries. And yeah, again, deadline is October twenty-second midnight Pacific. Yeah, we couldn't be more excited.
2: Yay! <laughs> Yay! This is this is us not being more excited. <laughs>
0: Yay! <laughs> so by the time you hear this, we'll have probably announced the contest officially on Atari Age. So I will go ahead and reannounce it here. We're looking to create a whole new Jumpman version, Jumpman Two, perhaps, with 32 new levels. So we're looking for people to help us design all these levels. There'll be a forum post on Atari Age where you can submit the levels, or if you'd rather submit them privately, so as to keep something a secret for the final Jumpman, you can send them to me at uh, feedback at playermissile.com. We'll judge them all the same, you know. We'll put them all in the same basket, um, either public or private ones. It doesn't matter. The two different categories of course, are the ones with custom code and the ones without custom code. We've done some work with the levels with the custom code. We haven't figured out everything yet, but we've got... We know where the hooks are in each level, so we can help you with that with our reverse engineering notes. So the stipulation of submitting one of these levels to our contest is that you are willing to release it to the public domain, because so we'd like eventually to gather up all these, um, especially those with custom code, and, and gather up the custom code in like a library and stuff, where people can just like pick and choose and select something, and I can put it in an omnivore, and... Say if you want, oh, I don't know, like a a robot that follows you, if we we can somehow generalize that, then you can just click on one of those and you can put it in the level, and there you go. Yep, so submit them to the forum or submit them directly to me if you'd rather keep it a secret. We're happy to have them either way. The contest is going to start pretty much, if you can hear this now, you can start the contest. But if it's after October 22nd, 2016, you'll probably be a little bit too late. So midnight on the 22nd of October 2016, we're going to start gathering them all up. Then we'll start judging them. And hopefully shortly thereafter, we'll, we'll announce it, and we'll, I'll gather them up and I'll put them all in a, a new package, and we'll post it to the forum. So I'm crazily excited about this. This is really why I created all the disassembly features of Omnivore, so I could figure out how Jumpman worked. You know, the little piece you heard there of me, with me talking to Kevin, I was saying that my original goal in this podcast was to write some of my own software, and you know, perhaps write my own game. And I got to think, okay, I even wrote down some designs of stuff I'd like to do, and on you know, the 8-bit platform of this game. And I, I, I was going to be a platform game, and I had Jumpman Jump in mind. And then I really got to think, It's like I can't really design something better than Jumpman without just, like, copying Jumpman. And just a copy of Jumpman doesn't seem that great, because Jumpman's already out there. So maybe we can figure out how Jumpman works. And after interviewing Randy Glover and finding out that we probably have, have lost the source code forever, this is the next best thing. And so we're really trying to work hard. One of my goals is to create a, a fully-assemblable... Is that a word, assemblable? Version of the code where you can just, we can actually run it through an assembler and create a new version. So, yeah, I think I've pretty much given up on my idea of creating a game from scratch. I don't think I'm going to do that. I think my efforts now on the 6502 are going to be focused on Jumpman. I learned so much about Jumpman. Well, as evidenced by the reverse engineering notes that Kevin and I put together, Kevin focused on the level building and I focused on the disassembly. And then I created a bunch of little hacked versions, like the first version I created was one where you have the ability to practice any level. So it took a while to figure out how to do that, you know, what the jump points were to get into it. You know, I had to figure out how the menu system worked, and in that there was stuff that happened in the vertical blank that I had to figure out, just a bunch of stuff. And so I got familiar enough with the code where I was able to make a few little changes and then just more and more and just kind of snowballed into a better understanding of the code. So I have a pretty good understanding of the, the main bits of the code. There's still some details I don't know about, like... Um, well, especially like relating to the custom code of e- on each level, because there's a lot of stuff that's standardized about all the levels. So each level takes up 16 sectors on disk, and they're all laid out such that the first like 64 bytes or so are a bunch of vectors that point to things in the rest of the level. So there's not a lot that's hard-coded, and so they can move things around within that 16 sectors. There's a bunch of pointers that point to things, like where the level definition starts, uh, where the in-game routine logic starts, so Randy, when you program this, laid it out in a very logical manner. But all the custom code is using a bunch of variables that I haven't been able to track down yet. And so that's just going to take more effort and more time. And the way to do it, I suppose, is just to find one level and just start working on that. And then as you understand that level, then more and more stuff will be applicable to other levels. So a couple of interesting things I found that I'll just mention here, and there's plenty more. I was just like, I don't even know where to start. One of the first things we noticed about the music is when I was starting to create some of these hacked levels, like the level builder, which is a just a standalone ATR image where you can test a single level. Well, I pulled a lot of the code out and I so the level builder skips all the menu stuff and jumps right into the level. But I started and I the intro music played, you know, as the as the level scrolls down in the normal game, it plays the the familiar Jumpman intro music. And then your little jump man dude fades in and you're ready to play. But on the level builder, it went right to the level, but it still played the music while allowing other sounds like the jump sound to be heard. So that to me was really interesting. It's like he somehow came up with a system that sounds wouldn't just cut off one sound and then play the next sound. So these sounds are overlapping. So I discovered that he actually has a little system where you cue up a sound to be played and then the vertical blank that handles the sound playing looks for an empty slot. And so it could play it out of Voice one, sometime, and then voice two or voice four. It's just depending on how many other sounds are going on. It looks for the first empty voice that it finds and plays that sound out of the next, out of that voice. And also, in terms of music, the opening theme, there are multiple voices being played, but it still uses the same sound driver. So what he does is he cues up one sound for essentially one instrument of that, and then he cues up a second sound for another instrument. And so they overlay and they play, you get sort of the chords out of it that way. It's not a separate routine that plays like multiple chords or multiple notes at the same time. Another interesting thing I found out related to that like initial level, when the level scrolls into view, I always thought it was using the hardware scrolling to do that. But it turns out, no, he's just blasting it out to the screen, Apple II style. So he he creates the initial picture of the level somewhere else in memory and then copies it to screen memory one row at a time. So essentially 40 bytes at a time. He's like copying it lower and lower and lower. Another interesting thing. Uh, yeah, I could, I could just go on forever. Another interesting thing, is in that cool effect at the end of the game when you've lost your last jump man and the level sort of crumbles. You know, well, that's a poor imitation. How about this? The only way it knows it's, that it's done is it checks the last few rows of pixels and if they're blank, then there is, yeah, there's no more crumbling and then it goes on to the end of games screen with the high scores. What I found though, is if you make the level if you make some object in level really tall, like like right at the end of the screen, the top line of the screen, it doesn't scroll that down. And so you're left with this streak, this line that goes all the way down and it'll keep crumbling essentially forever. I mean, all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. If, uh, as I get more and more into it, you know, I'll, I'll publish more and more stuff. I suspect that our, our reverse engineering document is going to be a living document. No, it's going to grow and uh, I'll pull as much as I can back into Omnivore in the comments because in Omnivore, as you are disassembling things, you can you can write comments that will appear in the um, disassembly. But yeah, so it's been a lot of effort, and there's I can't really think of another game I would have put this much effort into. This game affected my childhood and my life, and it's been amazing learning this much about it. So, yeah, there we go. I hope you are interested in Jumpman enough to try the contest. We're really looking forward to see some new levels. We may even have a few surprises. But stay tuned to the forum post topic. We'll uh, announce stuff as we go there. If you're using Omnivore and you find some bugs, please let me know. There's a little a little crash dialogue that comes up when something bad happens, so you can copy and paste that and send it to me at uh, feedback at playermissile.com. That's also the email address you can use for feedback about the podcast. And on Twitter, I'm at Games. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you all can come up with. So get up there and start creating some levels, and I will see you next episode. Yeah, about that, you'll notice it's been quite a while since I've recorded an episode. And unfortunately, I think that's going to continue. I'm going to have to announce a hiatus from the podcast for a while. I don't intend to end the podcast. I intend to come back. But I am struggling with, well, a lot of things, really. But um, particularly reading the magazines on Internet Archive, Well, while it's a great resource, it's just very labor-intensive and, frankly, not a lot of fun. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the intervening time to collect actual physical magazines. And once I get enough of those, I will restart the podcast and go through the magazines that I actually own. So if you'd like to help get the podcast back on the air fast, you can donate some magazines to me, or maybe I should set up like a Patreon or something. I've never taken money before, but I would accept some in order to like start collecting magazines so that I could get back to doing this, because I'm just, yeah, I'm too burned out to continue reading the magazines, all the magazines on the Internet Archive. So yeah, in summary, I'm going to pause the podcast, put it on hiatus until I can get all the magazines that... I want to review, and then I'll restart. I'm assuming it's going to take a while, you know, probably the better part of a year or so. Again, I don't think this is the end. I do have a lot of stuff going on, just, you know, normal life stuff that's certainly getting in the way, and obviously I had this episode recorded for, gosh, how many, three months now? Since before Kansas Fest, and now it's almost time for the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. And unfortunately, a casualty of my taking so long to get this episode out is the Jumpman contest that Kevin Savitz and I were working on. The deadline, of course, now is like a week away, and, you know, me not having this out uh, in, in time probably has hurt the participation in that. Kevin and I put a lot of work into that, and so I'm, yeah, I feel bad about not getting this out, although, yeah, I've I've had a number of problems that I've been dealing with, and um yeah, I know, as, as much as I really do enjoy this, I mean, my, well, I don't know, I wasn't going to share this, but I guess in honor of National Mental Health Awareness Week, I've been suffering from depression and anxiety for quite a while, and I've finally started getting some medical treatment for it, and it's been good. It's strange how long I resisted taking medication for it, you know, trying cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy for years. And yet I was resistant to take medication. You know, if you, don't know, if you broke your arm or something, you wouldn't like not go to the doctor and get it fixed. You'd you know, put a cast on it and then they'd it'd heal it that way. But if somehow there's a stigma about mental health issues that you can fix yourself, you know, you don't need to go see anybody for thoughts that you have. But I don't know if you happen to be somebody struggling that struggling with that, like me, I would suggest, you know, talking to somebody about it, see a counselor. Yeah, don't dismiss medication out of hand like I did for so many years. I think it's it's helped me quite a bit. I mean, these last three months, four months have been rough in other ways, but, you know, I'm not focusing on so much negative stuff. And anyway, that's my public service announcement for this podcast. Again, I don't think the hiatus is permanent. I hope to be back when I get a full collection of magazines. And in terms of the Jumpman contest, I would encourage you to get the Omnivore Editor, download it work on a few levels here the next week or so, and submit them to the Atari Age forum or ma- email them to me directly at feedback at playermissile.com. Kevin and I worked a long time on this, and we we're really hopeful that we can get a, a brand new batch of 32 levels. Anyway, until next time, uh, take care, and yeah, thanks for all the feedback you've given me in these past 20 episodes. I really appreciate it, appreciate the encouragement and support. Maybe I'll take a cue from Wade at Inverse Itasky in the uh, 1632 Atari ST podcast and uh, call this the end of Season 1, and then look forward to Season 2 sometime next year, maybe, and uh, if you want to help contribute to that, you can send me some old magazines that you're not using, or, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'll set up a donation page if you want to donate, I'll put all the money into me getting a collection of magazines and starting up the podcast again. In the meantime, I'm sure I'll still be working on Omnivore and be moderately active on Twitter and the Age forums, minimally active, perhaps. I'm not going to go away, I'm not going to leave the community for sure, but yeah, I think it is time for me to take a little break. So again, thanks for listening these past episodes, and take care.